Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here. I want to welcome you again to our gathering tonight and invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to John chapter 10, to the passage we're going to be looking at this evening. We are right in the middle of the Advent season, and that means that right now we are uniting with Christians all over the world to focus our minds' attention and our hearts' affections upon the magnificent reality that was Jesus' coming into the world. That's what the word Advent means. It means coming. And so each week during this season, we've been thinking about a verse or looking at one verse that makes an explicit statement as to why Christ came. Pastor Jeff, who leads out in our North Seattle expression, kick-started things off a couple of weeks ago by, by declaring to us that Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And then last week, we went, went, we went one step further and we looked at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and and we heard Jesus say, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now tonight, we're going to look at a third reason why Christ came. It is found here in John chapter 10, verse 10. It's a powerful little verse. There, there is a lot in it. But in this verse, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come so that you, that is those who trust in him, those who see beauty in him, those who draw near to him, that you may have life, but not just life. I want you to have life abundantly. And so Christ declares in John chapter 10, verse 10, that his agenda for coming into the world is to give life to people like you and me. So when you think about the Son of God being born in a manger in Bethlehem, you think about the Son of God being raised in a small town called Nazareth. You think about the Son of God ministering in the region of Galilee and Judea throughout the first, for a few years in the first century. You think about the Son of God's ministry leading him to Jerusalem where he would be arrested, tried, and crucified, killed on a cross. You think about the Son of God being placed in a tomb. You think about the Son of God three days later reminding the world that you can't put Jesus in the tomb. So he steps out of the tomb, raises back to life because our God, our Savior, our King is a God of life and you can't stomp life out of him. And as Jesus steps out of the tomb, as he resurrects from the grave, he does so to accomplish this agenda of giving life, abundant life to all of his people. And so this agenda is the passion, the heart of Jesus who came into the world to give life to us. Now, when you think about life and you hear that word, be sure that you do not reduce life down to the ability to register brain waves or have a pulse. Jesus isn't talking about something that should be reduced to biological functions. He's not talking about simply being able to register brain waves and a pulse. He's talking about something far more substantial. The life he has in mind here in John chapter 10, verse 10, is, is an abundant life that is characterized by spiritual vitality. It is a life to be marked out by the presence of the God who made us and in whose image we were created. It is an abundant life that should flow and bloom with the fruit of the Spirit, the presence of Christ within us, so that our lives would be marked out by love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, and self-control. It is the kind of life that Jesus would later qualify in John chapter 17, verse 3, as eternal life. 
And when you hear the word eternal, don't think quantity. Don't think about the life that you will be given when you leave this world after death. No, Jesus is talking about a kind of life that exists in the here and now for all who are trusting in him, who are living in him, who have that relationship with him. It is an eternal life whereby we know God and Christ Jesus whom he has sent. You see, eternal life has far more to say about the quality of our existence than it does the quantity of our existence. It has to do with you and I existing in relationship with God that is intimate, that is personal, that is redemptive, that is characterized by grace and love and affection and intimacy. A God that we might know and relate to personally as we're journeying through the world that is. This is the life that Jesus came to give. This is his agenda. But if you notice in John chapter 10, verse 10, that there is another agenda identified at the beginning of the verse. You see, Jesus isn't the only one who carries an agenda in and throughout the world. He identifies in the first half of that verse another player in the story. And he identifies this player as a thief. And this thief, too, has an agenda. And he says this thief's agenda is to steal and to kill and destroy. It's the polar opposite of Jesus' agenda for us. This thief is one who also works his will in the world. This thief is one who's also working his will, perhaps in some of you and around some of you, as he's seeking to take life from you. Whereas the thief comes to take life, Jesus comes to give life, and these two agendas are jockeying for our attention in every moment of every day. And so we want to consider whose agenda is giving shape, predominant shape to our lives right now. Is our lives being shaped by the agenda of a thief who comes to take life from us, or the agenda of the Savior who's come to give life to us. Now, to think about this, we want to just contrast these two agendas according to this verse. Let's think first about the thief's agenda, this one who is also at work in the world to take life from people. Now, if you're going to think about the thief's agenda, the first question you want to ask, well, who is the thief? What is his identity? Can I recognize the thief if I ever saw him or interacted with him or her? Like, what's the deal with the thief? Who is that? And if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, chances are your mind has already drawn a conclusion about who the thief is. You think, okay, well, Jesus has come to bring life. Then the thief, that must be, uh, I know something about Christianity. I know there's a God. I also know there's a bad guy named the devil or Satan. And so your mind may be automatically drawing the conclusion that the thief is the devil. That is, that it is Satan, the accuser, the one who's wreaking havoc in the world. The one that we learned about a couple of weeks ago, whose works Jesus came to destroy. And if you're drawing that conclusion, I want to affirm that conclusion, you're drawing the right conclusion. But I want you to draw that conclusion with a little bit more context and a little bit more nuance. Because what we want to consider is about this big T thief who's coming to take life from us and We want to consider the ways in which he does so, some of the schemes that he uh, operates with. And so if we do not examine the verse, verse 10, in light of its context, we are going to jump over and not recognize some of the ways that the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. 
And so to help kind of round out our understanding of, of who is the thief or who are thieves, we want to look at the context. Now, to do that, you want to take all of these verses into consideration. Not only verse 10, which is one that we're reading and focusing in on, but you want to take into consideration verses 1 through 10, that whole chunk, which forms a unit. And in this unit, Jesus is drawing on a lot of imagery from his first century era and his day to communicate what life is like in relationship with him. And so he draws on the imagery of sheep pens. He draws on imagery of a flock of sheep and of shepherds. He draws on these imagery, all this imagery to communicate uh, his relationship with his people and how he wants to be everything that his people needs, which we'll see in a moment. But notice in verse one, the first thing he says when he steps into this context, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He's saying if there's anyone who's coming to the sheepfold, the sheepfold there represents God's people, his disciples, those who are in covenant relationship with God. He's saying anyone who's coming to them, uh, not through the door, but they're jumping over the fence to get to them. He's saying that those people are thieves and robbers. They're bypassing the door. Then you might think, well, what is the door? Where, where's the door that they are supp- supposed to enter through? And then you drop down to verse 7. And listen to what Jesus says there. So Jesus again says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's saying, I am the door of the sheep. So you think about who these little t thieves are in verse 1. And I would posit this tonight, that thieves and robbers, according to John chapter 10, consists of anyone who wants to influence God's people apart from their own submission to Jesus. It's anyone who wants to influence God's people apart from respect and reverence and submission to the reality of who Jesus is and to the reality of what Jesus came into the world to accomplish. It is those who don't want to go through the door. It is those who are jumping over the fence in order to exert influence. And in the immediate context of John chapter 10, Jesus is thinking about uh, some Pharisees who are doing just that. These Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders who are not receiving Jesus as the Messiah. They're resisting Jesus as the Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus. They're not trusting Jesus. They are opposing Jesus. And I think these are the thieves and robbers identified in verse 1. These are the ones that Jesus has in mind. And you see this kind of fleshing out the further back you move in the gospel of John. You step into John chapter 9. There's this moment where you have a man who's, who was, who's been born blind. He was born blind, blind from birth. He meets Jesus. Jesus says, okay, this guy is blind. I'm going to heal this guy. And so he gives him sight, opens his eyes. And for the first time ever, this grown man actually sees the beauty of God's creation. He sees faces. He sees objects that he's only known by touch and sound all the days of his life. Jesus heals this guy. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they did not like that because they knew that that means Jesus must come from God or that there's something special about Jesus and they did not want to affirm that. And so they sought to discredit Jesus. They did not want other people coming to Jesus believing him to be the Messiah. And so they even have a series of exchanges with the man who's just been healed and they're trying to talk him into discrediting Jesus. They even tell him, I believe in verse 24, they say, why don't you give glory to God by, by affirming the fact that Jesus is a sinner? And the reason why they're saying that is because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. 
And so in their mind, they're thinking Jesus just broke God's law. They, he's just sinned against God, the Father. And so they're wanting this blind man who's now seeing things for the first time to discredit Jesus. They don't like the fact that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And that's an interesting thought. You see, one of the things about the Sabbath is that God designed the Sabbath to bring life to people. He designed the Sabbath to bring rest to his creation, to bring rest to our souls. The Sabbath was designed by God to promote life in the world. And here you have Jesus performing an act in a blind man's life designed not to take life from him, but to give life to him, to heal him so that he might see things for the first time ever. And in the Pharisees' mind, they're thinking Jesus is breaking the law, that he must be a sinner. But Jesus, I remind you, isn't breaking the law. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? He's the one who designed the Sabbath for our good. He's the one who rules over the Sabbath. He's the one who has all liberty and rights in the universe to do as he pleases on the Sabbath. And Jesus never checks his agenda. He never checks his agenda according to some religious rule or some religious application of the law that, that would prohibit life being given to another person. This is why Jesus would tell the Pharisees and the scribes in another passage, look, you guys are all about the letter of the law, but you're missing the spirit. You're missing the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is about life, and you guys are missing it. And so Jesus would heal on the Sabbath because his agenda is to give life to people. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're operating according to a different agenda. They're not there to give life to anyone. And in a sense, they're cooperating with another agenda to take life from people. Then you step back into John chapter 8 and you find Jesus talking to these same religious leaders. And there's this moment where they are questioning whether or not Jesus comes from God. Saying, I don't believe you're from God. You're not from God. We are the children of Abraham. We are the rightful rulers in the land the, over the people of Israel. And, and Jesus looks at them and says, look, if you guys are really of Abraham, if you really are the children of God, then you'd listen to me. Because I come from God. That's why I'm able to do the things that I'm doing and serve the way that I'm serving. You guys are, are missing it. And in this exchange, Jesus would then get, just square everything up. And you look at John chapter 8, verse 44. While they're calling his divine sonship into question, not believing that he came from God, he turns the table on them in this exchange. And listen to what he says. He holds no punches. Imagine Jesus saying this to you. He says, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because that you are not of God. So what Jesus is saying there, so that he kind of, that sets the trajectory all the way to John chapter 10, so that when Jesus steps up and he says, there's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the big T thief, the devil, understand that he works through a lots of little T thieves and little R robbers. And what's interesting about that moment when Jesus names that in John chapter 10, verse 10, understand that he's naming something that I think the Pharisees and the scribes were oblivious to. 
I don't think if you asked a Pharisee, hey, uh, I bet you you're, you're living according to the devil's agenda. You're taking life from people. I doubt any of them were conscious of, the, of that fact until Jesus pointed it out. It was a gift of grace for Jesus to step up and say, hey, there's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, to name that reality because the Pharisees and anyone who is, who is seeking to influence people apart from Jesus to name that out, to call it out, to say, look, you may be oblivious to this, but this is essentially what you're doing. You're operating according to the agenda of the one who that is to take life from people because you're not leading people to trust me. You're not leading people to see me. You're not leading people to follow me. And that is a huge problem. So this big T thief, the devil, he's, his agenda is to take life from people and he works through lots of little T thieves and lots of little R robbers. And so I think that is who John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is referring to. Now consider the metaphor. He describes him as a thief. Now, one thing about a thief, if we're going to think well about the enemy and his tactics and his schemes, you've got to know that a thief always conceals his or her agenda, right? The thief never comes to your house and knocks on your door and say, hey, I want to come in and take this because I don't have that. The thief does not come up to you and say, hey, I'm here to uh, announce my intentions to take stuff from you. The thief does not lead that way. No thief goes that way. A thief does not announce his or her arrival. They do not declare their intentions. The thief's agenda is always, always concealed. And then you think about what Paul would write about the devil in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's saying that the thief will actually conceal himself in that which is attractive. He will conceal himself in that which is beautiful. He will conceal himself even in that which many, many, many people consider to be good. The thief conceals his agenda. If the devil came to you and said, I'm going to take life from you, you're not going to listen to him. Nobody wants that. He's a shrewd thief who conceals his agenda. He's a con man. And every con man who gives you a hug will give you a hug while they're picking your pocket, right? They're concealing their agenda. This is the thief's way. And so you think about how he knows that each and every person on this planet wants life. He knows that that's kind of how God wired the human heart, that we want to live. We want life. And so what is he doing? Well, he's concealing his agenda of death in the promises of life. Saying you can find life if you take this. You can find life if you take that. You can find life if you think this way, do uh, live that way. Here is where life is found, constantly concealing his agenda. It's not unlike a fishing lure where you go fishing and you take a hook. What are you doing? You're concealing the, de the death from the fish with something attractive. And the moment that fish takes that bait, sees something that, they, that, that corresponds with their appetites, and they bite hold of that lure, and they do not see the hook that's embedded and hidden, hidden within it, what happens? Well, death comes, right? So you want to think how the thief conceals his agenda. It's a powerful image that Jesus is using of the devil in this moment. So let's think about a couple of ways that the thief might conceal his agenda in our lives and in the world around us. You, we might say that, that life, for many people who want to live, they, they tend to go in one of two directions. We saw this illustrated in the parable of the prodigal sons a couple of weeks ago. There are some who want to find life in the security of some religious devotion. 
But then there are others who want life and they look for it in the freedom of what might be considered irreligion or liberty or being able to do our own thing. And so you have these two ways where people tend to uh, seek life in this world. Let's think about the first one, how the thief might conceal his agenda in the security of religion. This is one of the ways the thief steals, kills, and destroys. This is one of the ways the thief keeps people from the Christ. So you have his agenda concealed often in the security of religion. Sometimes people wake up one day and they say, well, I want, I want life. Um, I feel like I, I'm getting to the point where I'm believing that there is a God. And so if I want to connect with God or some sense of transcendence or some divine being, then I must get religious. And so they'll embrace perhaps a traditional form of religion, thinking that in that traditional form of religion, they'll find life. So they'll go to a church, they'll go to a synagogue, they'll go to a a temple and they will look to do the things that the church tells them to do or the temple tells them to do or the synagogue tells them to do, thinking that if they do these things and allow this religion to give order to their lives, they will find life in the security that it may provide. And many people are going to churches and synagogues and temples in search of life, looking to religion to give them a sense of security, believing if they find that they will live. But there are some who do not go the traditional route. In fact, I would say there's many who do not go the traditional route, especially in our city. So when they want life in the security of religion, they might not go down a traditional path. They'll go down the trendy path. And the trendy path, which has surfaced about within the past 15, 20 years now, is the popular phrase, I want to be spiritual but not religious. It's just, they're just changing the language. I just want a form of spirituality, but I don't want uh, the, the rigors of religion. I don't want to be about pre- what previous generations was about. And so we look for to be spiritual, but not religious. Read an article this past week called, uh, it was titled Millennials Ditching Religion. Get this, for witchcraft and astrology. And in this article, this is what is being described. The author writes that spirituality has been booming in recent years while interests in religion is plummeting among millennials. More than half of young adults in the United States believe astrology is a science. The psychic services, the psychic services industry, which includes astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card reading, and palmistry, among other metaphysical services, is now worth $2 billion annually. That's insane. Melissa Jane, an owner of a, of a boutique called the Metaphysical Boutique, she says that she's seen a major uptick in, in, uptick in interest in the occult over the past five years, especially among people in their 20s. She says that her store offers workshops like Witchcraft 101, Astrology 101, and a spirit seance. She says whether it be spellcasting, tarot, astrology, meditation and seance, uh, meditation and trance, or herbalism, these traditions offer, get this, tangible ways for people to enact change in their lives. These traditions offer tangible ways for change to happen. They're seeking life in these trends. She said, for a generation that grew up in a world of big industry, environmental destruction, large and oppressive governments, and toxic social structures, all of which seem too big to change, this can be incredibly, incredibly attractive. What is she describing? She's describing the security of religion being found not in traditional forms, but in a trendy form. 
that these forms of spirituality that people can grab hold of to find life and the security and the sense that that might, the order that that type of expression and practice and rhythm might bring. But then there's a third way, I think, that the thief might conceal his agenda in the security of religion, not only in traditional formats or trendy formats. A third one that I would put before you is what I might describe as a substitutional way, a substitutional form. And by that, I mean there are people who are looking to other things that aren't considered religious or spiritual, but they're looking to these other things to provide a sense of order and security and stability and routine to their lives. You might put in this category the gymnasium. Why do people work out? Why do some people go to the gym? Why do some people get in a regular rhythm, a regular routine of going to the gym and doing their exercises? What are they trying to do? They're bettering themselves. They're looking for life in a certain physique or in a certain health format or meeting a quota. And and what is the gym providing for them? The gym is providing a weekly liturgy. A weekly rhythm where they're going every week at the same time, same day, same schedule. It's giving order to their life. They are looking for life perhaps in the gym. Others perhaps, other substitutionary forms of this might be the picket line. As people take up causes and advocate for different movements in the country, and the world, they think, okay, if I can just give myself to something bigger than me, and this cause seems to be bigger than me, then I'm going to find life at the picket line. Or you might find another substitutionary format, not the picket line, but the voting booth. But then not only the voting booth, you might say, okay, well, I want security in religion. I want the the things that religion tends to provide people with. And one of the things that religion gives people is a sense of transcendence. Religion has a way of drawing people out of themselves. And so where do people go? How do they substitute religion? Or what are some other substitutions for religion for that type of thing? Well, you go to a concert. You keep going to concerts. What does a concert do? A concert where you see artistry and music. There's a way where you find yourself in a a stadium full of people and what is taking place there and everybody's looking there and everybody's responding and engaging that moment and the art that is being displayed and and it gives people a sense of transcendence. It just kind of draws us out of ourselves. That's what good art can do. And so there are those who might go to the concert seeking the security that religion can provide a person or the things that religion has typically provided people over the, throughout history. But you might go one step further, maybe not concerts, you might say that another substitute for this dynamic is a person's career. You think about your career and how you give yourself to a job and wanting to advance it. You think about what a career does for you. Well, a career provides for you. And you make sacrifices of your time and of other desires and other dreams in order to go to work and have your career and advance yourself so that provision can be made. Careers give you a sense of order. It gives, you, it gives a liturgy to your life, a, a routine that is needed in, to have this security that religion typically provides people with. But the problem with all these dynamics, if if we are going after the security that religion can provide, whether it's in a traditional form or trendy form or some type of substitute, essentially we always find ourselves asking the question, are we doing enough? Are we achieving enough? Are we experiencing enough? We're a lot like Jim Carrey, who when he was uh, at the Golden Globes last year and he stepped up to the mic to introduce the nominations for Best Picture and And he introduces himself to everybody in the room. And this is what he says. He says, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And you know when I go to sleep at night, 
I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, and I'm going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. What is he describing? He's describing a lure that so many people have bought into. The lure, this security of religion, this security that can come to a person through their performance and their achievements and their accolades, through giving themselves some type of routine, some type of order, some type of vision, some type of dream. If they can do this or that, then they can find life. And all the while, Jesus has been saying for centuries, there is a thief in the world who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And it is possible that this thief is concealing his agenda in the security that religion or some form of religious expression is providing people with. But then you go one step further. Not only is it security, I think, one of the ways. You might say that the thief conceals his agenda in the freedom of irreligion. That is those who just want to buck the system all around. They don't really want a sense of order or stability or security. They just want to live free. And oftentimes this drive, this pursuit of life leads them into various hedonistic pursuits and hedonistic pleasures, thinking, well, if I consume this, inject that, feel this, see that, then I will find life. I will experience life as a human being in this world. And what is interesting about this perspective and this approach, the Apostle Paul actually says that that's the approach he would take if Jesus had not risen from the grave. There's a moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, you know, if Jesus isn't alive, if he didn't come out of the grave, and if my relationship with God isn't dependent upon grace and the reality of redemption in Jesus, then he says, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow I'm going to die anyway, so what's the point? So I'm going to find life in whatever I can, whatever by satisfying whatever desire, whatever craving, whatever appetite I have in this world, that's where I'm going to find life. And you find the thief concealing his agenda this dynamic so often where he high, where he presents to so many of us the immediate pleasures these immediate pleasures saying, if you just take this, you live. You take this, you'll be satisfied. You take this, you'll be happy. And he holds out these immediate pleasures. And we take the bait so often, don't we? But then we give ourselves a little bit. And then we want more of it. And we come back for more and for more and for more. Just pursuing a life of irreligion. Calling our own shots. Giving ourselves to whatever desire creeps up in our hearts. And what's interesting about this dynamic, if you've ever interacted with many people, or perhaps you've been there yourself, and you, this was the way you looked for life in this world, the freedom of your religion, pursuing pleasure. What happens eventually, whether it could happen in a week, it could happen 30 years after that initial bite, or that initial drink, or that initial injection. It can happen, at some point, it's going to happen where the law of diminishing returns kicks in. The law of diminishing returns kicks in, and you're going to find that that which you found satisfaction in, it's just not doing, it's not doing it for you anymore. The returns are diminishing, and so what do you need? You need more, you need more, and you need more, you need more, and you're coming to this realization that it's not doing it for you, and yet you don't know what the solution is, so you just try to do more of that which you've already done, and all of a sudden you find yourself trapped. 
You find yourself trapped in this, and it's, it's really a type of hell on earth because you are conscious of the fact that this is killing you. You are conscious of the fact that this is leaving you dissatisfied, yet you're still going for it. You're still going for it because you don't know what the alternative agenda is. You don't know what else is there. You, the thief has concealed his agenda from you, and he's wreaking havoc in your life as a result. I read an article yesterday that kind of hit this point of what Jesus is getting after, where he says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, saying not only is his agenda concealed from us, the more we give into it, it will be catastrophic for us. Now, I don't know how many um, (laughs) ant experts we have in the room, however, how many entologists that may be here, but I came across a video the other day that described uh, this dilemma that one entologist recognized when he said that there are more fire ants in South America than there are in North America, and he was trying to figure out why that is. And so he began to explore it, he began to research it, he began to study it, and he said, well, the reason there are more fire ants in, South, or in North America than in South America is because in South America they have something called the Pseudaction fly. The Pseudaction fly. Has anybody ever heard of the, of the Pseudaction fly? Now, this is a creepy fly. This is something off sci-fi. It's not something that you think is true or real, but I assure you it is. This Pseudactian fly, when it gets ready to reproduce and propagate its agenda in the world through reproduction, the female fly will fly down and hover a few millimeters above a fire ant. And the female fly has uh, a stinger that operates kind of like a hypodermic needle. And through this hypodermic needle, uh, the fly will inject its egg into a fire ant. And so it will inject this egg into the fire ant. And over time, uh, that egg will grow into a maggot. And that maggot will then move towards the membrane of the ant. And eventually it will start exerting its agenda for the ant. Encouraging it and inspiring it to do what it wants to be done. Now, what's interesting about fire ants in a colony of ants, if there's one ant that comes down sick, gets a virus or something like that, they usually exile that ant. If they see that the ant's not cooperating with the communal living that they've created, they'll kick that ant out. But the thing about this particular fly and the way that it exerts its agenda in this ant's life is that for the long time, it doesn't cause the ant to do anything abnormal. The ant continues to go about its regular rhythms and eating and getting food. And all the while, this maggot is feeding off the subsistence that this ant is, is taking in. But when, the fly get, when this maggot gets ready to hatch, by that time, it's exerted so much influence over this ant that it will l- encourage the ant or really force the ant to leave the colony. And the ant will leave and it will go to a humid environment that is needed for the fly to further develop. And so it'll go to a humid environment and then the, the maggot will grow and, and then it'll start injecting this fluid into the membrane and eventually this fluid will dissolve the ant's membrane. And when that happens, the head of the ant just pops off. Just pops off and the fly comes out and goes free. That's, that's, what the, that's a bad fly, right? <laughs> Concealing its agenda. Concealing this catastrophic end exerting influence over this ant until the ant is destroyed and it can go free or it can live. 
Now, I share that image with you simply to show the connection between the thief concealing his agenda from us. And when he conceals his agenda from us, understand that unless we wake up to the reality that he's taking life from us, whether it's through the security of religion trying to prove ourselves or the freedom of irreligion trying to please ourselves, his agenda being concealed will ultimately lead to a catastrophic end. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But there's another agenda at work, right? There's another agenda in this passage, and that is the agenda of the Savior. And you notice that his agenda isn't concealed. His agenda is crystal clear. He says, I came that they may have life. I came so that people might find life in me and through me. I came so people won't have to prove themselves to God. And I I came so that people don't have to live for themselves. I, I came so that they may have life. That is my agenda. And it is crystal clear. Life in me and through me. Now, earlier in this passage, Jesus talks about uh, sheep and shepherds. And he draws imagery there to show what type of relationship he wants with his sheep. What type of life Jesus wants to give to us. And there are two types of sheep pens that he draws on in this passage. In verses 2 through 4, there's a particular kind of sheep pen there. And then there's another one that he draws on in verses 7 through 9. Let's look at the first one in verse 2. It says, but he, Jesus is saying, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow follow him for they know his voice. And what he's describing there is a communal sheep pen that was quite common in the first century. If you had a shepherd and his flock of sheep just kind of grazing out in the fields, grazing out in the wilderness, finding green pastures, and let's say they're out and about and the sun goes down, they have to find shelter. They have to find some refuge. And all the towns in the first century had a communal sheep pen. And if the shepherd was near one of these towns, he would just take his flock there and he would go to this sheep pen and he would push his sheep through the gate and leave them there overnight. He'll go kick it up in a hotel, get a good night's rest, come back the next morning and there'll be a gatekeeper there who's keeping watch over everything. And the shepherd would come and tell the gatekeeper, I'm here to get my sheep. And then he would approach the the gate of this communal sheep pen. And you can imagine the chaos of all these sheep flocks, all these uh, different sheep from different different shepherds just kind of mixing and mingling there in the pen. And you wonder, how is he going to know which sheep belong to him? How is he going to know which sheep to, to pull out of that pen? And one of the unique things about Middle Eastern shepherding is that Middle Eastern shepherds have a very intimate relationship with their sheep. They actually give their sheep names. Not only do they give them names, they also train them to hear and to respond to a certain call. And every shepherd has a call for their sheep. And so a shepherd would step up to the gate and he would begin calling his sheep by name using the the tone and the, the vocal call that he's trained them to hear and to know. And it's amazing that when they do this, the sheep start separating themselves from all the others and coming towards the shepherd's voice because they know they belong to him. Now you think about that in light of Jesus saying, I've come so that you might have life. That's my agenda for you. Understand that this life concerns your relationship, your personal relationship with himself. 
So that when Jesus steps onto the horizon of your life and he calls you to himself, know that he calls you by name. That Jesus does not give a generic call saying, I'll take anyone and everyone, and it's very impersonal. It's not a generic call here. It's a personal name. So that when Jesus called you, he called you knowing everything about you, your weaknesses, your hangups, your struggles, your inadequacies, your insecurities. Jesus knew it all, and yet he still called you by name. This is the intimacy of the shepherd, the knowledge of Jesus who came to us so that we might come to him and receive life. This personal Jesus, this intimate Jesus, this aware Jesus, this is the image that this first sheep pen declares. Now, I was on Twitter the other day, and if you are on Twitter, if you do much of that, you know that every Twitter user has a handle. And this handle is their way of presenting themselves to the world, saying, this is what my life is about. And there was this young lady on Twitter whose, whose handle actually read this. The, the handle said, I'm just trying to matter. I'm just trying to matter. I'm living life in this world and I'm just trying to matter. If you and I are hearing Jesus' voice in John chapter 10, verse 10, and if we're hearing his voice in this passage, drawn from the imagery of a shepherd's relationship with his sheep, understand that Jesus' voice is saying to you and to every one of his people, you do matter. You matter to me. That's his declaration. And when you realize that you matter to Jesus, that brings a sense of security to your life that religion could never bring. When Jesus says, I'm going to show you that you matter to me by living a life that you could not live, dying a death that you should have died, rising from the grave for your salvation, all by grace, Jesus is saying, I'm doing this so that you can be convinced that you matter. And so that you lie, the life that you live in this world doesn't have to be lived in seeking the security that religion can provide you. No, you can find security and stability and awareness that you are loved in me. But not only do you see that shepherd or the sheep pen there, when you keep going into verse 7, Jesus kind of shifts the image and he talks about a different kind of sheep pen. Because remember in John chapter 10 verse 10, Jesus came not only to give life, he came to give it abundantly. A super abundant kind of life. And so in verse 7, Jesus again would say to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, get this, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. This fluid, serene movement of coming in and going out, finding pasture, grazing. This is the abundant life that Jesus came to give. You see, the second kind of sheep pen that Jesus is drawing on is this idea that let's say a shepherd and his sheep are out, in the, are out and about and the sun goes down and they're nowhere near a town. They can't get to a town in time. So what do they have to do? They have to build an impromptu sheep pen. And these impromptu pens would be built with rocks and debris. These little walls would be kind of built up and they would be hemmed in to, with like a, a mountainside or a very dense forest that creatures couldn't get in and out of. And it would just kind of wall it off. And, and the shepherd would build these uh, impromptu pens uh, out in the middle of the field, out in the middle of the wilderness. And he would leave a little opening. And this little opening is where the sheep would come in and go out. The sheep that he would lead them into this space so that they would be safe, so that they could be protected from any predators that might come upon them in the evening. 
But what's interesting about the tradition is that shepherds wouldn't build a gate for those pens. They wouldn't build a door. No, what many shepherds would do, what all the shepherds would do, is they would build this impromptu pen and then they would sit in the gate. And they would prop themselves up in between the two walls and they would go to sleep there. They would literally become the door of the sheep. And the shepherd would lead his flock into this area. And then in the next day, he would, he would allow them to come out and go out and graze. So you get this imagery of movement in and out. If anybody's going to get into the pen, who do they have to go through? They have to go through the, sh- the door. They have to go through the shepherd. Anybody who's coming out to eat the next day, who are they going through? They're coming out. They're going through the shepherd who has become the door. This is the imagery that Jesus is painting here. And I think it's a powerful picture of abundant life. He said, we, we said earlier that people seek life in one of two areas. They seek it in either security of religion or the freedom of irreligion. But what is Jesus saying here with this imagery of going in and coming out? He's saying whether you're looking for security or you're looking for freedom, understand that you have both simultaneously in me. That I am here to bring security to your soul. I am here to bring liberty to your life. And when you have security and freedom, that's when you live. Think about it. Security is necessary for freedom to exist, right? Security has to be in place if somebody, if freedom is going to exist. But then on the flip side, freedom can only exist in a secure context. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, everybody's divided because of the thief's agenda. Some are seeking life in the security of religion. Others are seeking life in the freedom of irreligion. And Jesus is saying, and everybody's missing the point. They're getting half of the equation. I'm here to bring both security and freedom together. I am the door of the sheep. Life is to be found in me and through me. I'm here to stabilize your soul by assuring you that I love you and I'm here to liberate your life from sin and Satan and death so that you can live in and through Christ because in and through Christ you can be secure and free at the same time. You don't have to pick and choose which one you want to find life in because they are both present in the person of Jesus. So you consider these two agendas and You consider them and then you examine your life and you ask yourself a sober-minded question. Whose agenda is giving shape to you? Whose agenda is giving shape to your life in this moment? Are you seeking security in religion or freedom in irreligion? Or are you finding security and freedom in the life that Jesus came to give you? You see, the remarkable thing about a shepherd in the first century is that a shepherd never leads his sheep anywhere he hasn't already been. And that kind of contrasts with shepherding, say, in Australia and some of the other parts of the world where people drive their sheep from behind and they just kind of push and prod their sheep from behind them. But in Middle Eastern shepherding, the shepherd's always out front. He's always walking where the sheep would then come. And so you think about the security that's available there. You think about the freedom that's available there, that abundant life can be had because you have a shepherd, you have a savior, you have a king who takes you nowhere he has not already been. And you think about abundant life and that frees you up, right? Perhaps some of you think about abundant life and you think that abundant life means a life free from suffering. No, 
Or others of you think abundant life is a life full of stuff. No. So you turn your attention to Jesus who gives abundant life and you think, okay, he suffered. He died. He was crucified. And those who follow him, they may suffer. They may die. They may be crucified too. Not in the same way as Jesus, of course. But just because we follow Jesus, it doesn't mean we're excluded from suffering. But it does mean we can suffer in hope. Why? Because Jesus has already gone before us. And he's defeated suffering. He's defeated death. He gives hope to those who are walking behind him. Or you think about those who think abundant life is all about having a bunch of stuff. And you think about Jesus being a poor rabbi who traveled the world without a home. Was he content? Yes. Was he full of life? Yes. And you discover that abundant life has nothing to do with having the right kind of stuff or the right amount of stuff. You say, no, abundant life is all about being connected to Jesus, following him who leads us nowhere he has not already gone. And where has gone Jesus gone? He's gone through the grave. He didn't just go to the tomb. He went through it. And he's leading all of his sheep, all of his people in the same direction. And we have an opportunity to remind, to remind ourselves of that reality tonight, considering his agenda to give us life. And the way he gives us life is by dying the death that he died on the cross. And so you're going to come to the table tonight and you're going to think about this reality. And I pray that you would revel in his agenda for you, that he wants life for you. That's why he gave his body for you. That's why he shed his blood for you. And so you come to the table tonight being reminded of those realities And let your heart just revel in the fact that Jesus died to give you and me life, but not just life, an abundance of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider these realities tonight? Would you fill us with your spirit to think about them well, to receive them well, to respond to them well? God, thank you for loving us by sending your son Jesus into this world to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we should have died and to rise from the grave so that we might have hope, so that we might truly live, so that we might be reconciled to you and be part of your people. We thank you for that, God. And I pray that you would cause our hearts to swell in response to that truth tonight in Jesus' name, amen.